0: hi welcome to that's classic if you are interested in seeing some fantastic additional footage from my interviews as well as receiving my newsletter uh please go to patreon.com slash that's classic that's patreon.com slash that's classic enjoy all right well today on that's classic as i always say we have a great one but we really do we have a fun one um the uh, the gentleman that I have coming up, uh, he was uh, Chip on um, the My Three Sons, and I actually have also interviewed his brother Barry um, from uh, My Three Sons. So I'd like to welcome today Stanley Livingston. Uh, Stanley, thanks for being here. Thank you, thank you for having me on. Appreciate yeah. it. Well, definitely, I'm I'm quite excited. Like I said, I had Barry on, and it was a it was terrific. And I've been wanting to talk to you for some time. So this is. This is great. Um, So right out of the gates, as I like to say, um, what, uh, you know, I, after talking to Barry, Barry had a a very like kind of, I would call it more of a business relationship with Fred McMurray kind of vibe. But when I have read about you and the fact that obviously you were on the show for 12 seasons, um, the entire Mm -hmm. run with, with Fred, what was your relationship like with Fred kind of on and, you know, off the set?
1: Yeah, he was a very cordial guy. And, you know, he was very much like the character he played. You know, people always think, and and that's true with a lot of actors, they play a character and then in real life, they're nothing like that. Um, You know, they can be nicer, or they can be kind of cold and aloof. But yeah, Fred was a very nice guy and easy to get along with. I I worked with him for 12 years, uh, nine months out of the year. And, you know, in that entire time, I never saw him blew a fuse or get mad or get angry. And, and uh, you know, he had concerns about the show or sometimes the dialogue. And, you know, they were never met with a temper tantrum first. But, you know, he would tell the director, or the producer, and they'd get a writer down on the set and sit around the table. And in five, 10 minutes, they'd get it worked out and we'd be shooting again. But, you know, a lot of actors start, you know, throwing furniture throwing their script yeah. around and Yelling and screaming at somebody, and you know, he he just wasn't like that. He was just a nice, decent, easygoing guy. Yeah, I always like to say he's just a normal guy, a big movie star, but he was just like the guy next door. You know,
0: mm-hmm. yeah. I I had uh, I, I, John Sorry. Davidson was on the show, and he had said, "Look, Fred McMurray, you know, he was basically a band guy that ended up making it. You know, and uh, that's that's really who he was."
1: He was, uh, you know, very low key. And, you know, when he came to My Three Sons, he was probably the highest paid actor in Hollywood at that time. Wow. Um, you know, just come off of uh, The Cane Mutiny, The Apartment, uh, The Absent Minded Professor, The Shaggy Dog. So, you know, he was at the pinnacle of his career. And that was the odd thing to most people in the motion picture industry especially from that era it's like well why would you want to go from being a movie star to just being a tv actor you know most yeah. tv actors required to be movie stars and right. if they could get a position, they'd never go back but he had a he had a reason behind it and it was that he and his wife june uh, adopted uh, twins uh, about four or five years before that and he knew the drill of making movies is sometimes you go away for four to six months making a film somewhere and If you're a busy actor like Fred, well, you know, you might see your family a couple months out of the year and the rest of the time you're on location. So he concocted this idea in his head that, gee, if I did a TV series, um, you know, I don't know if it would be a step down or how he looked at it in the the scheme of things. But he could work uh, from eight to five, eight to six, go home, you know, eat dinner with his kids, watch TV and then come back to work the next morning. And then they set up a, a filming schedule that allowed him to have the summers off. So he would work for about two three months, take off uh, for three months during the summer while we continued to work and shot all the scenes that he wasn't in, and then come back again at the end of uh, the end of the year and I don't know, September October November and finish off the rest of his stuff. How did that
0: affect you by the way, as an actor being on the Fred McMurray schedule?
1: you know as an Hector we always shoot things out of sequence anyway it just depends when sets are ready or people are available so sometimes you shoot the ending first and shoot the middle and then go back and shoot the beginning you know at the end so we were used to doing that I mean where it was a little more complicated was was scenes where he was actually in them and would walk out of the scene but the scene would continue on except we wouldn't the part where we would continue on till six months later. (laughs) Uh, We'd step in with a camera and take a Polaroid and go, this is where you were, this is what you were wearing, and we'll come back and pick this up in three months. So, Or we would shoot scenes that Fred would walk into, and we would do the same thing. We'd shoot maybe two or three pages that he wasn't in, then all of a sudden the front door would open, and Fred would walk through it like he's coming home from work. And uh, so we would shoot the first part. And when Fred came back at the end of the year, uh, we'd all get into position and uh, yeah, Fred would come to the door and, and then when you <laughs> cut it together, it seemed, you know, plus you always have a cutaway. You know, we it could be yeah. a big group shot then you cut to the front door and Fred opens it and you drop back to the wide shot again and now everybody matches. So there's how little did, cinematic tricks to doing that kind of stuff.
0: How did that affect you as, you know, you're a kid and as we all know, Kids grow and, you know, you you know, things change. Uh, how did that yeah. affect you coming back feel, six
1: months later? That was the only issue that they couldn't control is if I had a growing spurt, which I did. Yeah. And suddenly, you know, my pants, which were cut properly, now were are up to my ankles, you know, like <laughs> later, because I grew two inches. Uh, you know, they'd have to let the pants down. They kind of, you know, even anticipated things like that, though, that I was, 12 13 I might grow I remember I, I had to buy pants that were longer and they tucked them under and, and hemmed them wow and then when I grow they would have to you know let them down but sometimes you wouldn't be a size small anymore you'd be a size medium or you know whatever or my hair started changing you know yeah I would early
0: imagine
1: it was very blonde and about the second, maybe the beginning of the third year, it started to get darker and they were, kind of wanted to keep it blonde. So they sent me to, uh, it, where was it? Uh, uh, the, the Westmore's owned a, a, a beauty place or a makeup place. Mac, yeah. Oh, it's Max Factor. Oh, yeah. Uh, Hollywood. And that, about every other Saturday, I had to go there and they put hydrogen peroxide on my hair to make it look blonde. And it, it burned the heck out of my scalp. Oh, my god! So we gosh. did that one. Next year, they wanted me to go back. I said, I'm not doing that. If I have to do that, I quit. I'm not doing that. And so there was a big meeting, and they finally realized I wasn't going to do it. I wasn't going to be a very happy camper. So they just, yeah, let my hair get darker and darker. And, you know, it went from being a platinum blonde when the show started in 1960 to my, if you look at the end of the series in 72, my hair is almost black. So yeah. it, it yeah. changed over time.
0: Isn't that funny? And I
1: grew up not quite as solid as McMurray, but <laughs> I think uh, there was always somebody who told me there was a thing in Hollywood that if you became a child actor, you wouldn't grow, you know, cause you wouldn't fit in the TV scene anymore. So there was a psychological. <laughs> so short.
0: That's actually really funny. Now, another thing is you had a very close, and I know Barry talked about this with me as well, a very close relationship with uh, William Frawley. Um, yeah. And yeah. you, you know, it, I will tell you I I've had I haven't released it yet I'm sure my audience out there is like what he's talking what is he talking about but I also spoke with Tina Cole and I'll be releasing that episode and Tina did, had a totally different relationship than the two of you guys um, because oh, yeah. you were there early on and all of that what what was he like
1: um you know pretty much like you saw him on the show you know seemingly cranky and crusty but you know the dialogue was written for him otherwise it would have been a you know a machine gun of four letter words yeah <laughs> his, yeah his speech was you know peppered with profanity and uh, you know he cut it loose at times and in his frustrations he wasn't fred mcmurray you know he was like this subtle guy if you didn't like <laughs> somebody you know he's like who writes this shit you know and he would just right. go off on a tide and they'd still have to get the writers down and you know he'd berate them and they'd still get it fixed. But yeah, a lot of it, I think he did that because he was kind of notorious for that and made people just crack up and laugh. And, you know, I think he was exploiting it to a certain degree when I look back on it and how it happened and why it happened that he was entertaining people by being himself. And so he was happy to oblige. And, you know, with me, Yeah. I I neither, you know, Barry and I, we, we didn't know our own. uh, We never met our grandfathers. They had passed away by the time. And so I always wanted a grandfather. I missed that, having that element in my life. And I was a big I Love Lucy fan. And I didn't realize at first, you know, Fred Fred Mertz said we're gonna be Bob on the show. So when I found that out, I was like, you know, beside myself because that was my favorite character from I Love Lucy. And wow. uh, so came on the show and you know, I set out to make him my surrogate grandfather and I wasn't sure whether he'd warm up to me, but he did. And we just had like a fantastic relationship where, you know, every day we went to lunch together, there was a restaurant around the corner called Nicodell's, which is an old established Hollywood watering hole. And he held court there every noon. And in the same booth at the back of the place, they would hold it for him. And, you yeah, know, we'd all go in together and have lunch. It was usually about 8, 10, 12 of us back there. And uh, I always sat next to Bill. And, you know, Bill would buy me an alcoholic drink. even though It was only 9 <laughs> and 10. <laughs> Our was like, don't you drink that? And then I would kind of put it down under the table and you know, dump it out and when he wasn't looking. And Oh, my God. So we kind of. No, you know, yeah, he was kind of a corrupt influence in my life. Yeah, we smoked a cigar together occasionally. His, <laughs> his... Yeah, he was, you know, the kind of grandfather you you really wanted. He was everything. And, and, you know, I think he he really, really loved me. I mean, I could I could tell, you know, that he did. Uh, I was into surfing when I was about 12 to 13. And for my birthday, I think it was my 13th birthday, he bought me a Dewey Weber surfboard.
0: I'm a and surfer. I, we- I appreciate that.
1: We came back from lunch at Nickadell's, and I had to go change my wardrobe. and went up into my dressing room. When I opened the door, there was a nine-foot Dewey Weber sitting like in there. I was like, my eyes popped out of my head. Wow! And it said, "The chip, you know, love Uncle Bill." And yeah, I was, uh, I you know, I think I cried. You know, it was so so moving. You know, because you're thinking, an old guy like that, and he didn't drive. Um, yeah, you know, would have been. So much easier to open his wallet and go, here's $20, which would have been a lot of money in 1960, in 1963 even. But it meant he was listening to me, you know, what I was into and what I liked and remembered it. How the hell would he know a Dewey Weber surfboard? I don't think I mentioned the name of it, but somehow he found out that that was a good surfboard, found out the size surfboard that I should be surfing with. And bought this beautiful coral-colored surfboard. Oh my and gosh! How did you get it? How did you get it here? <laughs> you know, you don't drive. We well, had a driver in a car, but you know, I just can't imagine Bill O'Reilly walk in this some surf shop. You know, talking to somebody because <laughs> <it's> the dude, <laughs> you know, it's like, so man, what are you here for? Are you surfer, you know? No, yeah, and, and it's like, all right, man, you want to. He want have smoked some of this and whatever, he, you know, somehow he got it and brought it back and, you know, put a little gift card in there and, and you know, I never forgot it. And then the funny uh, part is, well, it wasn't funny to me, but there was a couple other guys that were on the crew that surfed too. Mm-hmm, and yeah. our, our assistant cameraman surfed and somehow his surfboard got away from him and uh, it collided with the front of his face and knocked his front teeth out. Oh my gosh. And, the producer saw that it's like you can't surf during the production season you're banned from surfing so the surfboard ended up in our pool at home you know for about nine months a year and i couldn't wow. surf so and then probably by the next summer i wasn't into surfing anymore you know at that age you change all the time I was probably in the oh, yeah. minibuy motorcycles or something
0: Boy, what a great heart. I mean, seriously, I mean, I, I, as I told you, I am a surfer and I know what a classic that, uh, well, first of all, Dewey Weber is a legend. And then yeah. on top of it, that he went to the extent that he did. Uh, that is something I did not expect, to be honest with you. That's, yeah, that's he, pretty cool. You
1: know, it's funny at the time, I didn't think about that. You know, you just think, here it is, he gave it to me. But, you know, when I got older, I'm going, God, this guy had to go to extreme trouble to mm-hmm. find out about this. And, you know, it'd be another thing if he was a younger guy and, you know, had a pickup truck or SUV and went down and, you know, bought it and threw it in the back of his truck and brought it back. But, you know, you're talking about Bill. It was like 71, 72, you know. Yeah. And, uh, you know, to go through all the mechanicians machination, of, of getting that surfboard and getting back, you know, it, obviously uh, he went the extra mile.
0: As he, said. he loved you. There's no doubt about that. When yeah. somebody does that, they oh. don't just do that as a casual thing. Um Hey, by the way, I, you know what? I should put this out to the people listening just so that they, in case, if you're just listening, go to www.youtube.com slash that's classic TV. And you can actually see Stanley and I talking and, and, you know, get a, get an idea of this. So just so everybody knows, um, on the other side of the coin, Stanley, uh, you know, once again, I, you know, talking to Barry, he had this special relationship with Fred de Cordova who obviously, you know, went on to be the uh, producer of the tonight show what was your relationship with Fred? Cause Fred was quite, I mean, a lot of people out there might not realize, but Fred was like majorly connected. I mean, he knew everybody.
1: More than majorly.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Same kind of
1: relationship. I mean, yeah, he pretty much fawned over both of us and, you know, me being a little bit older than Barry, I, you know, I was at that time too, just getting interested in the other side of the motion picture industry. You know, I, I, thought I may not just want to be an actor, but I, I was interested in directing and producing. And, you know, he was a great guy to talk to and pick his brain and how do you do this? How do you do that? And, you know, all the experiences he had and was generous with advice and, you know, just a super, super nice guy, too. And he had a very unusual personality. He was somebody that, you know, you didn't want to tangle with in, a, in an argument or a conversation because, He'd put you in his place, and that, that was one of the things I respected about Fred. He treated the guy that made the coffee and got the donuts on the set the exact same way he treated Fred McMurray, no less, no more. And you know, if you got into it with him, he was going to put you in your place. didn't Didn't matter whether you're Fred McMurray either. And I think he'd always wow. been that way with people, and that worked for him. And people had, you know, a lot of respect. And I mean, you could tell uh, there was a whole coterie of show business people that used to come to the set occasionally and and visit fred you know like ronald reagan would come down george byrne jack benny
0: wow willie
1: shoemaker you know all these you know upper class of the industry type of people that he had worked with and cultivated relationships and a lot of those guys was his card buddies they would play cards so um well, that would happen at his house. So he, he was a real mover and shaker. And, you know, I knew he was kind of at the top of the social, you know, I, the A list, I guess you would call it, of social life in LA. Yeah. But there was a very interesting article that I just stumbled upon. Oh, uh, gosh, it was maybe a year or so ago about his, you know, the later days, after even after Johnny Carson, that I I didn't realize he had so many problems. Was having financial problems, really? And uh, yeah, I I was actually just stupefied that 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 was his demise, kind of. But uh, where did I read that? Vanity Fair. There's a great oh. article. You go look it up, and you wouldn't believe what happened to he and and his wife Janet. Uh, it kind of talked about you know how he was literally the pinnacle of the social social I guess uh, life in LA uh, you know he didn't go to people's houses people came to his house right and he and janet you know held court there and you know everybody was anybody would be seen there and that was the place to be seen and janet was uh she was the queen of of all of that and yeah. uh yeah, I guess after Fred got fired or let go from Johnny Carson, you know, the next people that came in weren't paying him the princely sum that he was being paid, uh, you know, during the Johnny Carson era. And then at the beginning of the Jay Leno era, I think that's when they let him go and decide to get somebody younger in there, but they kept him on. But almost as like punishment, you know, he's like getting scale, if you can believe wow. that, like a real you know, just, I mean, that's, you have to understand that's our industry. If no, I can know. put you in, I know. in your place or what they feel is your place. Now they'll do it. And it was humiliating. I I didn't realize he went through that at that point in time. And
0: I will look
1: uh, for that article red finally ended up at the motion picture home. And I couldn't even believe if, if the articles to be believed that he, you know, couldn't just get in there. somebody had to get it, And, you know, I'm like, wow, if he couldn't get in, how would I get in? Well, I found out I can't because they changed all the rules. I used to be I always envisioned I would be out there at the end of my life if something went wrong. But even I don't qualify our our union and the things associated with it, just basically discard actors like trash.
0: Oh, my and, God. Uh,
1: I had no idea yeah, about that. Springs were full. He got to go in there, and that's where he spent his last days. And the, the real, I mean, it's probably an interesting story, and it's not really about me, but yeah, uh, he, they had a maid at their house for the whole time there. It was probably 30 years, the same lady, and she was very loyal and loved the decoratives, loved Fred, loved Janet. Yeah. And the whole thing went down, and, and they basically were having financial problems. Uh, Fred said, you're going to have to sell the house and move into, you know, you'll probably be a afford a very nice condominium because the house is at the top of Truesdale Estates, and yeah. uh, it was a beautiful house. And uh, she didn't think she could do it, or didn't know how to handle finances because Fred did all that. And you know, she was just the head of the social stuff, and that's all she wanted to do. And so this maid, who they paid lavishly and and took care of them, and you know, fought for them and sheltered them. Well, it turned out she had to give up the house, and the wow. maid said to don't worry about it. She goes, you can come live with me. She goes, but I'm going to have to let you go. And she goes, I know. She goes, but don't worry about it. You're going to come to Mexico and you're going to live in my house. No way. And she took, but here's the the best part. The money that they paid her over the 30 years, she she built a replica of their house in Mexico. (laughs) (laughs) So she had the same bedroom, the same furniture. And this lady (laughs) took care of Janet until she expired. I mean, it's like totally insane what, what happened. You know, I mean, it's just scary when you hear somebody who is, you know, at the top of the industry and then the top of the pinnacle of the, the social scene in L.A., and that's how you end know. up. You going, what's going to happen to me? I'm not that guy. I'm going to end up somewhere.
0: I'm sorry. I mean, it is it is sad, but it is also really funny, the fact that she goes down there and there's a replica of the house.
1: Yeah. A <laughs> replica of not only the house but the, the room she had and the furniture and I guess she just liked the way that the lived and, and you know obviously it didn't cost as much in Mexico as it would have if you lived at the top of true stale estates on Carla Ridge Wow. Uh, in I don't know what city it was in whether it was in Mexico City or Puerto Vallarta or something but yeah this lady was very astute and she did not spend the money uh, lavishly uh, she was thinking about her future and probably her demise at some point, and and wow. you know built this very lovely house down there, and you know, but it's just so funny that I, I was, gosh, this would be like a great play or a great movie. Oh, where incredible. these Wealthy, incredible. wealthy people end up living in their maid's house, who was taking care of them, and now really is taking care of them.
0: It you can't, like they always say, you can't, you can't write stuff like this. I mean, you try, no. but you could no. never write that. No, I agree. So yeah, what? Yeah, they should- Check, check this.
1: It's very. It's a long article, so there's a lot of detail about what went on and all this other stuff that was kind of swirling around that and a lot of information about the decoratives that I, I
0: will. you know, I
1: knew Fred fairly well, but, you know, this is right. kind of more on the, uh, almost like a, uh, an atomic level. <laughs> the oh, it's
0: amazing. Level that's an incredible story. So, what about um, the other one is, uh, you know, William Demarest comes in. Yeah. And, you know, also very established actor as well. But I know that, you know, once again, through talking to Barry, that transition wasn't exactly like, oh, great, here's William Demarest. You guys had such a tight bond with Frawley. What was that like? What was the process? Uh, like exactly
1: there? how it happened. You know, one day Frawley's out and the next day there's other guys there. You know, it wasn't like a, you know, an going we'll, we'll just kind of shoe you in or slip you into the role. You know, it's so one day the one guy's there and the next day he's not there anymore and he got replaced. You know, it, it wouldn't have meant very much to me at a later point in time, had I been in my late teens, when, cause you know, I'd worked enough by then and on different things and seen actors replaced. Sure. So I have a funny story about Barry. Remind me after I tell you this, and we'll talk about the thing Barry. But uh, yeah, you know, they couldn't get Fred. Uh, Fred couldn't get Bill Frawley insured. So they decided they had to let him go. And that was primarily because we didn't shoot episode by episode. We were shooting in five different episodes a day. And they worried that, you know, we could shoot out 10, 12 episodes and what if he dies? you am going to start all over. All his roles would, uh, you know, would have to be replaced by somebody else. So you know, yeah, who he he No heartbeat. It, it, I mean, it was like crazy, yeah. on, and his health a, you couldn't find a heartbeat on him. <laughs> it was so shallow, I guess, at that point. But uh, yeah, it was a, a financial decision that the insurer said, "We we can't insure him. He's just, mm-hmm. you know, he could collapse and die at any moment." And if you're shooting like you're shooting, and not segment by segment, you know you shot two segments and he died. Great. You go on and get a new guy for the third segment. Yeah, that's a and big And keep risk. going yeah. in the, the case with Red. So they let him go. And it was sad. And because of my age, I guess I was about 14. I, I was very, very upset. Uh, well, number one, that he wasn't going to be there anymore. And and number two, that this guy who came in was taking my friend's job. <laughs> you know, So <laughs> I wasn't rude to him, but I didn't warm up to him. It took me maybe a year or so, you know, to That's realize what it wasn't his fault. And he filled Bill Bill Frawley's shoes very well. And, and I think they wanted to work with him because he had worked with uh, Fred Nick Murray many times. And he was cut from the same cloth. You know, he was one of those crusty old guys on camera. In fact, Bill Probably was more like his character you saw on TV, only more of it when the camera, when they said cut. Bill Demers, that was kind of a, just a character and off screen, he was a completely different guy. He was just low key, nice. He wasn't yelling and cursing. And you know, he was a completely different kind of guy.
0: Was he warm and, to you and Barry? Yeah, yeah, he really was, and
1: you know, as I got older and older, we became closer and closer. And even after the show was over, I, I used to go down to Palm Springs a lot and you know, drop in on him or visit him and have lunch or talk. Or you know, he's just a really nice guy. How wonderful and, to hear that. To be honest, he was probably a bigger movie star than Bill Frawley. Now, Bill mm-hmm. Frawley worked in the movie industry, but. His, you know, celebrity really came from being on I Love Lucy and that whole phenomenon where Bill Demarest was a bona fide movie star. You know, he did all those Preston Sturges films. He was
0: right.
1: one of top second bananas in the movie industry. You know, was maybe the lead, but he was always the best friend of, of the main guy or the main detective hunting down. Oh, you know, the I've bad seen guys. him
0: in so many detective roles. Yeah. Uh,
1: and the funny part about the two of them, they, they look the same. You know, when they were like 30, as they did when they were 80. And now you go, geez, you're like, I'd like to see a picture of you in kindergarten. You probably looked the same way. You know, they just looked old.
0: It's a good point. So what was the story about Barry? You said, tell me, Uh remind me.
1: You know, be with an actor. And then, you know, two weeks later, they're gone and replaced. I did a movie early in my career uh, called Rally Round the Flag Boys. Oh, with uh, uh, Paul Paul Newman.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: And yeah, when I got cast, you know, there was a bunch of kids. And then I remember at the end of the casting session, you know, there was a bunch of us and they let everybody go and asked me to stay. And I stayed. And um, so I said, well, you have the part. And uh, anyway, so my mom was there and and because she didn't have a babysitter, she had Barry there. And so, yeah, she, we're talking and, and the casting guys like, well, who, who's this little kid here? And they go, oh, that's Stan's brother Barry. And they go, Oh, well, this is great because we're looking for another kid to play the younger brother. Wow. And so, guess have got the part? Barry. Um, so the first day of shooting, we're shooting the film, and the director was Leo McCary. I don't oh, know if you know very who he is. Big director. He's the guy that put Laurel with Hardy, and you know, that whole phenomenon happened. Yeah. But uh, we're supposed to be watching a TV set. Uh, Paul Newman walks in in the background, comes up and starts talking to us. So we, our directorial um uh, challenge was to not look at him not laugh just stay watching the tv set and ignore him so we did and then but he started ragging on barry saying, hey look i need you to look right at the tv set i don't want to see you looking here i don't want to see you looking there right at the tv set don't move your eyes off of this we shot it again (laughs) and he went up to barry he goes you're not listening to me i need you to look directly at the tv set you're you're looking over here and Barry oh goes, God. I'm not, but you are. I can see it. <laughs> so shot it again and again. And I could see Lou is really getting frustrated. And, you know, I'm just three years older than him. So it was hard for me to really calculate what was going on. Wow. Anyway, they sent Barry to an eye doctor during the lunch break. And it turned out they discovered my brother had crossed eyes. So it wow. was never going to look like was looking at the TV set and a decision was made on the spot that they did not want Paul Newman to have a a kid with crossed eyes. And by one o'clock I had a new brother. Wow. We had to shoot all over again. Yeah. Yeah. Wow.
0: What the irony of that whole thing is, is your brother is so well known for being that guy with the glasses that It actually, it's one of those classic moments in life where it's like, oh, that's a bummer. And then it actually turned into a good thing down the road, you know?
1: Well, it was that rally around the flag that, you know, you say, think sometimes things are, wow, how horrible you lost the job and now you got to wear glasses. It was sort of serendipity that that happened because after that, his career really took off because most of the kids trying to get into showbiz or that were working that time did not wear glasses, and this gave him a very distinctive look. And he kept going out on interviews with the glasses. And he kind of, he, he sort of became the quintessential nerd. You know, oh, for a little kid. Without a doubt. So he'd get parts where he was like a child genius or, you know, a smart guy. And, uh, you know, with his Mr. Moto haircut and buck <laughs> teeth, he had a but, well, look, but he was adorable. You he know, was. It worked. So sometimes, in show business, uh, you don't know what's going to work for you. And you just fall into that by, like I said, serendipity. That yeah. something changes and they ask you to do something and, you know, you you go with it as all instead of fighting it.
0: Did you, um, you know, it's hard to talk about uh, that movie and not, you know, you mentioned Paul Newman. I mean, possibly one of my very favorite actors of all time. You were young. Granted, but do you recall uh what he was like on the set and what, what he was like as a man?
1: You know, not in its entirety, but I mean, you know, how he dealt with child actors, you know, he he seemed to be I may mean, come up and talk to us and it probably behooved him to do that because otherwise, you know, we had no sense of oh, you know, we're working with a huge movie star. You know, it's just a guy playing our dad as far as we we're concerned. And yeah, you know, I I probably didn't know who he was so you know he, but he seemed to be a nice guy congenial and kind of you know would talk to us and kid around and stuff like that basically so we would establish some kind of rapport so it wasn't just like okay I'm playing your dad you don't know me really but exactly. I'm playing exactly smart and actor distance there so yeah he did that and joanne woodward did the same thing or when i did please don't eat the daisies you know doris day went way out of her way to kind of bond with us so that we had a relationship when it came time to shoot that you know we would feel comfortable coming up to her hugging her or putting her arm around us and that's
0: not you know jumping back like
1: who are you uh, uh like yeah
0: so I- that would have been pretty warm doris day yeah right? yeah yeah uh,
1: but again, as a child actor, you, yeah. you know, you're working with giant people in the movie industry. And, you know, you. that's probably why kids are natural. They have no conception of the place in the industry that these people are at. and You're just reacting to another person reacting to you. So it, it's very, right. very, well, as long as it's a, it's a nice person. You know, somebody yells at you, then it would be a kind of an off-putting relationship, so to speak.
0: Yeah. What about um, going back to my three sons, you know, then we have Don Grady, Um, you know, what was your relationship with Don as, you know, obviously he's the older, you know, the Mm -hmm. older of of, uh, the three. Um, What was your relationship with Don?
1: Um, You know, it was brotherly in a way, but I mean, we weren't close, we're closer later. Uh, you know, it looked like Don was more like 14, 15, and I was the nine-year-old where he was actually going on 18 at the beginning of the show. He was older than he seemed. And I I thought, oh, wow, this guy's going to be cool. He'll be in the schoolroom. Well, what I didn't know was that summer, he was graduating from high school, so I was left all alone in the schoolroom by myself. Wow. And yeah, you know, on the set, he was a pretty cool guy, and he was into his music and Eventually, I guess a couple of years later, I, I got into music and, you know, we showed me how to play guitar and chords. And he had a piano upstairs, electric piano, which he was always up there writing music and practicing. Uh, but yeah, it, it was a good relationship, you know. But, uh, the one I probably had the closest relationship with, though, was Tim Considine. He oh, played yeah. the original older brother, Mike, on the show. And maybe because he was older, uh, he, you know, he just looked at us as younger kids. And, you know, he, even off screen, he was the guy that would come over to our house on Saturday, pick us up, take us to his mom's house, go swimming in her pool, or take us to a, a drive in and eat lunch, you know, and get them all. Really? And yeah, he was a nice guy. Yeah, yeah. And he was a car nut. So that was his thing. Uh, when we knew back in those days he had a D Jaguar, and then he had a 300 SL going Mercedes. Oh. He had all these really cool cars. So we always wanted to be around those cool cars, or he'd take us like to auto shows with him. And so that relationship uh, continued till he left. And But even after he left, we stayed in contact. Uh, you know, when the show was over, I guess I was an adult, I was like 22, 23, but we were still in contact. And, you know, we'd see each other at events or a couple times a year, or there'd be a party or something. But then he started having an annual birthday party for himself on New Year's Day. And for about, I think it was over 30 years, maybe 40 years, I went there every New Year's Day, wow. you know, and out with him. And then his friends would come. Tommy Kirk was there, who was, I knew wow. him from the time I get to George Meharis. So he had a lot of people, show business friends, and they were in the cars, all those guys. And then a lot of professional, uh, you know, auto drivers, car drivers. And then by then, Tim had, you know, become a, Somebody of note in in the auto industry, he uh, was a writer for Car and Driver, auto trend. He'd written uh, two or three books on auto racing. In fact, that was no the last idea. thing he did. He wrote a book, I think it was called Twice Around the Clock or something like that. Uh, and it's about auto racing in Le Mans in France. And it it's like, a, a I think there's three books and they're all about 500 pages long so it's a series of volume one, two and three of everything about Lamont's so auto racing from whenever it started and the histories and the photos and just the most minute detail and minutiae about racing. And wow. he knew it all done research and he was a fabulous writer. And these big cocktail table sized books, I mean they weren't cheap. They're like three hundred and fifty, four hundred dollars. Oh gosh, uh, you'd you'd have to be an, an auto aficionado, I guess, to to want them and Learn about auto racing on that detail. But after the past 15, 20 years, Tim and I, and uh, he invited us to go to the uh, Indy 500. So we've been doing that for 20 years till he passed away. In fact, I'm going again in a couple of weeks. Uh, the guy that he introduced us to is having us back again. So it's going to be kind of a strange time because Tim was always there. This will be hey, the first just time. He passed
0: away not that long ago. Yeah.
1: yeah. He won't be there. And the other guy that used to go with us is Tony Dow and his mm-hmm. wife so yeah it's going to be a little bit different but I just right. saw the guy his name is Mike Lanigan and he was just out here for the uh, uh the Long Beach Grand Prix and he had three cars racing in it so got to hang out with Mike for about three or four hours and on the Saturday I didn't go to the race I just thought well I'd rather watch it on tv at home if I'm gonna watch it because yeah. you can see it so yeah you know you were you, were these- you
0: uh, close with Tony Tony Dow? Yeah. Tony, before I was in show business,
1: Tony and I were swimmers and we uh, actually training to become divers. So I was probably about six and Tony was probably about 12, maybe. Wow. And we had this diving instructor and about a year, maybe two later, Tony got cast in Leave it to Beaver. I didn't even know he was an actor and I don't think he knew I was trying. And then a couple of years later, I started getting things and you know, started getting how it started really on Aussie and Harriet. That's where I got my first line of dialogue, which allowed me to join the Screen Actors Guild as an actor. I started doing movies. I did a TV pilot at the um, end of 1958 for Jackie Cooper called Skippy, which yep. I starred in. And that pilot, the reel of the pilot, got me most of my work. It got me Please, and Eat the Daisies. And then the following year, it got me My Three Sons, That uh, the producers of the show were looking around for somebody, you know, the three sons, and they were looking for somebody to play the youngest son, and uh, somehow my agent borrowed the reel from Jackie Cooper, you know, sent it over mm-hmm. to Desi Lou at that time, and they screened it, and the next day I got signed to play Chip Douglas, so. I mean,
0: you didn't even audition, you just, they just looked at the reel and said that's well,
1: it. will Skip, you'd know why I didn't have to audition. Uh, I was literally on screen ninety percent of the time, and the other half of the dialogue was mine. And my name was above the title. Yeah. Uh, and it, with the you know stamp of approval from Jackie Cooper, you know, one of you know, besides Shirley Temple, he was the biggest child star there
0: ever was. Oh, so, without a doubt. Uh, how did you get it? How did you get Skippy?
1: A, yeah, well, he was a big producer in the industry by that time, producer and director actually, and was doing it. Show called uh, the People's Choice, and then in '59, I think he started Hennessy. So it came with his blessings, and he let me out of the contract so that I could do it. But yeah, if you saw the work that I did in that, you know, I never saw it.
0: How did you originally get Skippy itself? Oh well, yeah, this is (laughs)
1: basically because of a dog (laughs) is how I got it. What I know it sounds. Um, When I was doing Ozzy and Harriet, I you know went on. I think I told you I was an extra. Uh, but when I wasn't, sh- well, finally, I got a line that allowed me to join the Guild. Ozzy said he would have me back again. And he did from 57 through 60. I probably did fifteen, eighteen 18 Ozzy and Harriet episodes. And he was actually writing episodes with me in mind, you know, the plot created around my little neighborhood Stanley character. Oh, cool. But when I wasn't shooting, there was, you know, downtime and I would go wandering around. Well, next door to us, there was a horse. And I remember I'd go over there because I was taking horseback riding lessons and talk to the trainer and he'd put me up on the horse and let me ride out of the sound stage around the back where they had built a little stable for this horse. Was that Mr. Ed? Run. It was Mr. Ed. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, it was. And then across from us uh, during the noon hour, they would slide open the stage door and there was a dog that was there with the trainer and, you know, he'd take it out and walk it around. And I went over and started playing with him and introduced myself to the trainer, who eventually was Mm -hmm. the guy who was the trainer for tramp. His name was Frankie. And, uh, you know, I guess some guy saw me there every day when the sliding door would open and the dog would come out playing with this dog and walking it. And, you know, he would show me how to train and do different things. And yeah, this guy came up to me and started talking to me. And then, I thought, oh, my God, I'm probably in trouble, you know, because I don't have an adult around and no mom. (laughs) And so is your mom around? And I I said, am I in trouble? And he goes, no, no, you're not in trouble, but I'd like to meet your mom. So I said, well, okay. So I walked him back onto stage five where we were shooting Ozzy and Harry and said, mom, this guy wants to meet you. (laughs) And then I walked away. So they said they're talking for about 15, 20, 30 minutes or something. And he left. And then next thing I knew, uh, he wrote a TV pilot for me called Skippy, and uh, which was, he was, Jackie Cooper made a movie called Skippy in 1934, Very famous. and it was of the year, yeah, it won the Academy Award, the director won, he won, still the youngest person, I think, to be, uh, won a, an Academy Award in, in the leading role uh, position, and uh, so he saw something of himself in me and wrote this TV pilot, and cast me in it. I, I didn't even have to interview because he met me already and knew I could handle it. Wow. So uh, wow. we shot it. And then it didn't sell. It just kind of, you know, was there. And then I went on started doing movies and other TV shows and stuff like that. And then uh, I think what happened was he the um, show he was doing, uh, The People's Choice, ended and he created another series for himself called Hennessy. So he kind of moved on to that. And this thing went on the, the back burner, And fortunately, uh, and like I said, it was a good showpiece. My parents or my agent would borrow the reel occasionally from him to show it to casting people or producers. And it got shown to my three sons and you know, the rest is history as they say, but had it not been for, Oh, it wouldn't have been over there. And Jackie Cooper probably wouldn't have come up to me and introduced himself. And that whole thing transpired.
0: Hey, um, the other one, you know, I had John Provost on and a uh, great guy, by the way, Lo- love him. And um, he told me that you were actually on Lassie, that you were in yeah. a, in, in an action, because I brought up, I said, hey, I heard there were some dangerous moments. He said, actually, there was one with Stanley Livingston. And he said that mm-hmm. you jumped into a pond, which, by the way, you bringing up that you did diving with Tony Dow, and it made me think of this, he Robert. said you dove into the pond and Apparently, the bottom of the pond was this thick mud, and it was actually quite dangerous. Yeah, it turned out to be dangerous. Well, that was one of my first
1: jobs, and that's where I know... Well, actually, I knew John before that. You know, we'd been on interviews and stuff like that, so we were aware of each other. Wow. But in the episode they call the transition episode, where Tommy Raddick was leaving the show, he'd kind of outgrown the show. I guess he was about 18, and the guy who yeah, played yeah. Porky, his name um John Vieira or something like that. Uh, Anyway, they were leaving and a whole new family was moving into the farmhouse and it was June Lockhart and Timmy and instead of Jeff. And uh, yeah, I I don't remember what the the situation was, but uh, he let Jeff leaves Timmy the dog because he doesn't want to take him. He's moving to the city. And uh, I think Timmy's upset about moving to the, you know, to rural life and, and runs away and somehow falls into this lake or pond or whatever it was and is almost supposed to drown well I guess my agent knew his agent or something they were looking around for a kid that could be his stunt double basically so my first stunt job but basically yeah I went out there how to fall into the water and then flail around in, in the water like I'm drowning and kind of do it in a way that I don't think out of the water like that and then I yeah. go back under and up so they couldn't see my whole face. Otherwise, you would have seen it. Although John and I, from a distance at that age, we both had you know platinum blonde hair, and we had our hair the same way. We we lived alike. So I remember they gave me his wardrobe, and then somebody came out to the pool. I don't remember it was the producer casting person, and then I had to jump into the the water and pretend to drown. They go, "Okay, he'll do," you know. So I get out on. I'm thinking I'm going to be in a pool, but you know, it turns right. out it's just. His- murky lake and even then i was having apprehensions about this um so yeah i i think i jumped off a bridge or there was something near that that i had to jump into and then start flailing around and then Lassie's he's barking on the shoreline to get the attention of the adult who goes running out into the water to get me well when i started getting out there and, and going up and down one of the times i went down The water had so much sediment at the bottom, and I don't know if you've ever been in a pond. It's like goop. Yeah, if you go in, the suction gets a hold of you. And when the suction got a hold of me, I was probably two feet underwater, not near the surface. So I was struggling to get free from it just enough to get my mouth up to get another gulp of air before I went back down. Anyway, and then it probably looked like I was drowning because guess what? I really was, I wasn't getting enough air and that guy got out there and got me just in time and, you know, pulled me up out of the muck and he's holding me. And my instructions from the director was, you know, go ahead and flail around. He's going to come out and he's going to pick you up. But when he lifts you up, you kind of turn your head to the, to this side because we're going to be shooting from that side. So we don't see it's you. So, you know, we, practiced a couple times on shore before i did it so i knew which way to turn and then you know i went out and did it for real and i got my stunt double credit
0: <laughs> Gosh, that is paid. scary though when you're under the water <laughs> like that
1: that is scary yeah both about seven years old when i guess i am seven eight years old so you know and it's funny that's another thing i never saw until recently i don't know how i'd never well i probably didn't watch the show i didn't even watch my three sons to be really honest but
0: yeah. anyway um mm-hmm.
1: I don't know. I was looking. It might have been on YouTube. And I thought, gee, you know, what if that transition episode exists? And I typed it in that way, keyworded it. And uh, it came up. So I started watching it and got to the part where I that scene is there. I never saw it before, but yeah, it looks pretty, pretty cool. And I just took a couple of uh, frame grabs just just have habit to say that i did it you know hurry i'm out here you know drowning for john provost and to this <laughs> day of john guys that goes back to the indy 500 with us uh he's he's one of the other guys that goes so it's we have what we call the usual suspects <laughs> that's what we yeah. call ourselves or the unusual suspects most more likely
0: well please uh, say hi to yeah. him and say hi to his wife lori for me as well just yeah. uh, great great people
1: they, they are, yeah, and I love Laurie, too. In fact, I introduced them. I don't know where they mentioned that. They, no, no, she
0: did. She did. She told me.
1: <laughs> I said an autograph show, yeah, and she was sitting next to me, and I think I was single, but I, w- I already had, like, this girl I was interested in, and so I wasn't trying to date anybody else. But I said, hey, you know, I do have a friend. <laughs> and so I called John over and said, hey, John, I want you to meet you know Laurie, and they hit it off, and you know, a couple of years later, I think it was, uh, we were all at their wedding.
0: That's so cool. Let me ask you something. Um, I had read I read Barry's book, which, by the way, was excellent. For anybody that's out there, you should buy it. It's it's a I great one.
1: The importance and of being
0: Ernie. <laughs> the importance of being yeah. It, it was it was great. I really enjoyed it. And uh, but anyway, I was going to say there was a moment in there where he talks about you getting your break, and I know that you had mentioned earlier you you and Tony did the diving together. But I thought this was a wild story. I I read that a photographer was there and shot through this window they had apparently in the pool. And you're, now am I, I correct this? You're at the bottom of the pool on a bike?
1: Yep, this lady that ran this swim school in Hollywood. Uh, I had a cousin who died about three years before I was born who drowned. And my mom was mortally afraid that Barry and I would die. Well, first me, because I was three years older than Barry. Mm -hmm. They moved to California and she wanted to go to the swim school in in Hollywood on Hollywood Boulevard. The lady's name was Jen Lovin. It's huge. Cool. And she taught infants uh, how to swim. Mm -hmm. And it could be anywhere from like one to three, you know, when they would put you in the water and. After uh, a couple of months of uh, classes, you knew how to swim. So my mom didn't want me to drown. So I don't know what made her think I was, but was she, and move. the lady from school is very entrepreneurial. She would get uh, magazines to come down and shoot. And what she had done is she cut a hole in the side of the pools, about a four foot hole, a circular hole, and had a real thick piece of glass installed there. And you could go down the steps on the outside of it and see underwater. So what wow. she would do, We take, remember car, little tricycles and bicycles and toy cars. I mean, there was a car, one that looked like a fire engine. Another one was a tractor and put them underwater and we'd be driving around. And she would say, it's like auto accidents underwater. (laughs) a swing, a swing set, we'd be doing all that. It was cute and it got a lot of notoriety, but a lot of period magazines. In fact, I, I just was looking at the other day, a uh, scrapbook and it was Vogue magazine, came out and did a whole layout, but there was like life, look, and we we're called water babies. So we did that and we also would dive off the high dive, which, you know, was 12, 15 foot high wow. dive. We were like about that tall back then. And uh, because of that, a lot of Hollywood people started bringing their children there to learn how to swim. And then she finally got a, there was a show back in that era called uh, You Asked For It. And people would write in saying, you know, whatever they wanted to see. I want to see a a rocket being launched, or I want to see a car race, or I want to see these kids underwater called Water babies. Well, I'm sure she was the one who wrote in. (laughs) Wrote in, yeah. But they did come out and cover it. And we were a segment of, of You Asked For It. And like I said, Hollywood people started bringing their kids to learn how to swim, producers, directors, agents, casting people. And there was an agent whose daughter was learning how to swim. And, you know, I guess she saw me and I caught her eye and uh, she started talking to my mom about and I was pretty extroverted, and I guess I was cute with the blonde hair and outspoken, so she thought I had the uh, the right qualities uh, to be a child actor, and so wow. she finally convinced my mom to let, let her send me out. You know, with the caveat that, uh, you know, I probably wouldn't get acting roles immediately. I'd be an extra, but I would, you know, get some experience on the set and see how it worked and be around other kids on the set and be exposed to other producers and casting people. So I did that. And yeah, for a while I, I had no lines. And that's what happened on that final, like I cast on uh, uh, Ozzy and Harriet as an extra. And for, I guess I caught his eye. For whatever reason, he came up to me. We shot it a couple of times. He said, hey, i want you to say this line and he goes i'm gonna put a piece of tape on the floor right here put a little x and he goes when you get right here i want you to stop and look at me and say this line i don't want you to look at the tape on the floor so you just have to you know look and know where you're going and then i want you to turn i think it was to the left and go out so we shot again and i you know walked in and stopped where the tape was and looked up wow. at that sure's good camping in there mr nelson and, and then i turned and left and then he move the camera closer shot i did a close-up and then he went up to my mom afterwards and i guess i did okay because he said i want you to leave your contact information with my secretary in the front office i want to have stanley back and yeah but that's the oldest story in hollywood i want to have you back or see you again and you never ever 50 years later you've still never seen the person or they never hired you again but Ozzy was true to his word from, you know, 57, I think is when I did that, to 1960, when I couldn't come back anymore after I did this particular episode, because I got hired on My Three Sons uh, Unreal. in 15, 18 episodes, some of which he wrote for me, you know, I, I became like the favorite, I guess, neighborhood kid. And the funny thing is, the very last episode I did for Ozzy, I had my brother, my brother Barry, you know, because really. He, was in it, uh, and, and uh, he had a line. And he, I think the storyline was uh, he had made some T-shirts up for a club, and they had they printed it wrong. And he got somebody else's order and it said "Welcome back, Skinny" on <laughs> it. And so to pot him off on these kids because we we have a club. And he goes, "Well, yeah, you know, maybe you guys shouldn't be like the Tigers and the Vikings." He says, I got these shirts and they say "Welcome back, Skinny." And we're like, hey, Mr. Nelson. And we were just all sitting there eating bowls of ice cream and, and Barry's in it. And he had a line. It was so funny. He's so cute. He's got the glasses, but just the way he's got ice cream, like all over him. And he was just like, couldn't care less about the scene. He was just scarfing up the ice cream. <laughs> it's so funny. And so when I left, uh, you know, Barry did a good job. And, and they needed to replace me because by this point, they were sort of dependent on me whenever they needed he, you know, a neighborhood kid. Wow. They replaced me with Barry, and Barry went on for the next three, or four years before he became a regular Mind Teacher Sons. He probably did 20, 25 episodes of Ozzy and Harriet. I don't wow. How... I yeah. mean, seriously,
0: that is a cool That is really a cool story. Uh, now it takes yeah. you back. Well, but, yeah,
1: so that's, that's kind of my acting career. And then
0: like, oh. I, I, I got into producing
1: and directing, and I've got a project right now that I'm doing called The Actors Journey. Actually, it's done. We're going to be putting it up hopefully in another month or so. But it's a uh, program for actors. But it's not about, you know, the art and craft of acting. It's actually uh, teaches the business side of being an actor. Because there's this huge, what I call a void
0: Yeah. In
1: taking your classes, whether you take them at UCLA or, you know, some college, some university, a junior college, or if you go to the actor's studio or Yale or Harvard you just spend anywhere from 10 grand to a hundred grand on learning how to act. And then now you don't know how to get into the industry or whatever. Yeah, you know,
0: nothing about the business yeah, that, so that happens. Yeah. I have an acting background. I, I know in the
1: industry. Yeah. And in the middle, there's this void that yep. 90% 99% of the actors fall into never to be heard again after they spend all this time and money and learning how That's to true. become actors. And I don't know why the call Well, I do know why the colleges just uh university. Don't teach that aspect of it. And, the industry just like any business is comprised of more than one component it's not just acting if that's all you know it's not going to happen for you so there is the business component it's like running a restaurant you can be the best chef in the world but unless you know how to run a restaurant it's you're going to be out of business like within oh, months
0: you'll be done yeah you'll be done where can yeah. they get a hold of this where can they go to to uh do well this?
1: It, it'll actually be up online we originally had it as a dvd program mm-hmm. and i had to put it on the back burner cuz i started doing some other Projects and I couldn't run the company, but I'm back to doing that again. But I don't want it to be a DVD program. We wanted it to be an online streaming program, which is kind of what's prevalent is today. Is there a
0: website or is something
1: called theactorsjourney.com? But the website right now is offline. I'm building sure. it, and then it'll be connected up to where it'll link up with the uh, material, the content, mm-hmm. and like I said, ten-hour-long program. I don't teach it. I was originally going to do that. And I thought, well, that's kind of presumptuous. So I brought in 100 people from the industry. uh, 100? Over 100. Who've had 20 to 30 years experience. Wow. 50 of these people have either won or been nominated for Academy, Emmy, Golden Globe awards, and it's not just actors teaching actors about the business. I brought in directors, producers, showrunners, uh, casting directors, agents, managers. I had the president of the Screen Actors Guild at the time. Wow! I and of the Directors Guild of America. I have about twenty people that were on various boards at both of those entities, um, and it's yeah some. Pretty amazing people stepped up to the play. Of course, they were, you know, friends of mine that I could call yeah. upon Still. and to see if they were like-minded, that uh, actors, you really deserve to know this material uh, before they get going with their uh, careers, if they get going at all, or it helps you get going. But, you know, people like Michael York or one of the people, Henry Winkler, uh, Danny Trejo, Sherman wow. Hemsley. Uh, I have brought in the director, Richard Donner, who directed all the Lethal Weapon movies. Very Superman, famous. Big directors, uh, casting people, like I said. Uh, yeah, it's huge. If you want to get a sampling of it, uh, what I put up is I had some promo clips so people could see who was involved. So I put up about, I think, about 50, 60 clips. And it's got of uh, the various people that- On YouTube? Programs. It's on YouTube. So if you go to The Actor's Journey- on YouTube, search that out. Uh, Yeah, you'll find, I I believe there's at least 50 clips of not more. Some of these people talking about various aspects uh, that are related to the business. But it's a 10-hour long program that walks you through everything from I don't know anything to you actually become a mega success, which brings its own hardships and problems that you have to learn how to surmount. And it it covers everything from soup to nuts. It's I, I left no stone unturned as far as I'm concerned. God,
0: let's yep. do this. Let's plan then when this gets released. I'll um, let you know. We'll Anita. do another one and we'll just focus on that because I'd enjoy okay. that.
1: When you get a chance go to youtube and like i said in the box just type in the actor's journey and you can like i said you'll see who's in it and it'll it'll kind of blow you away it's kind of neat because you now it's just face after face comes at you that you're oh my oh whoa, oh, look who's you know it's kind of that thing look who's there i, I
0: like, gotta just see that for sure all cool, right oh, great Thank talking you so with much you.
1: Yeah, we'll talk
0: again. Thanks again for listening. And if you'd like to see the additional content or my newsletter, as well as all the other additional things that you can get, uh, please go to patreon.com slash that's classic. And I'm also on YouTube uh, where you can see me and the guests do the interview at youtube.com slash that's classic TV. Thank you.